Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hello. Just a note before we begin today's episode of Hometown History Europe. The topic involves details about nuclear war that some listeners may find disturbing. I'm just outside the English village of Kelverden Hatch in Essex. I'm pretty close to London, about 25 miles away in fact. But you wouldn't think it around here. Because I'm surrounded right now by a thick forest and sprawling open fields. And I'm standing in front of a farmhouse. I'm looking up at the little door, knowing that this door does not lead to what you might expect. There's no family kitchen in there or humble domestic dwelling. You see, this bungalow in front of us right now is fake. Or rather, it is a decoy house specifically designed to trick people into thinking it's just any old farmhouse. Well, that's not the case. Through those doors up there is a tunnel. And through that tunnel is a marvel of subterranean engineering, a testament to human ingenuity and how we have learned to construct. But ironically, it only exists because we have also learned how to destroy. You see... What we will find at the end of that tunnel was born out of fear, and its function was survival and recovery, not only of the people hidden inside, but also of this entire region in England. And the threat was very specific and unfathomably deadly. Nuclear war. In a moment, we're going to head inside, but before we do, let's explore what led to the need for places like this, not just here, but all around the world. Because I'm Peter Laws, and today on this special two-part episode of Hometown History Europe, you and I will be heading deep into Kelverden Hatch secret nuclear bunker. Growing up in the 1980s, I was well aware of the threat of nuclear war. 
News reports, films and TV shows, pop music and lessons at school all fed into the fear that at any day now, Russia might send a nuclear warhead to Europe or the US. And if it happened, it would change the world, in some ways, end the world. But at the time, I hadn't appreciated that nuclear weapons had already changed the world, specifically back in 1945, when they ended the Second World War and started the Cold War. Let me explain. By May of 1945, the Nazis had already surrendered, but the Japanese were still fighting. That was until August of that year when the US decimated the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they did it with a terrifying new weapon. Atomic bombs. The power of these bombs was devastating, producing thermal radiation that could reach temperatures even hotter than the sun itself, enough to burn skin from bodies even four kilometers away from the blast. And as appalling as this technology sounds, to the British and Americans who invented it, atomic weaponry was a formidable yet marvelous gift of science. After six years and one day of fighting, these bombs finally brought an official end to World War II. And the Allies felt reassured to be on the side with the ultimate weapon. And yet, Soviet physicists were already trying to catch up. At first, their progress was slow. But after the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin deployed its top scientists to build an atomic bomb as the utmost priority, with no expense spared. Now, some in the West were not too worried, assuming that Russia would struggle to understand the technology, let alone obtain enough uranium to build it. Yet, in Kazakhstan, on August 29, 1949, the Soviets successfully detonated their first nuclear device. They called this test first lightning. And with it, the nuclear arms race had begun, with countries in a desperate attempt to stockpile atomic weapons, but also to develop new ones like the hydrogen bomb, which was a hundred times more powerful than its atomic predecessor. Now that the Russians were a serious nuclear power, it was no longer enough for the West to simply build more nuclear weapons. They would have to put strategic nuclear defense systems in place. And when it came to defense, there were two vital components. Firstly, there had to be an early warning system, so we could detect if warheads were heading our way. And part of that project was the building of a series of bunkers deep beneath the ground. And from here, enemies could be monitored in secret. And that's where we are right now. We are standing in front of one of the largest of those bunkers in the UK. It was built on, or rather I should say under, farmland, about three quarters of a mile from the village of Kelvin Hatch. And this heavily wooded site around us was chosen for its rural location and it only being 25 miles from London. The owner of the land was a farmer called J.A.J. Parrish. And when the government came calling, they said they were going to buy this land here. And he had no option to turn them down. I spoke to Mike Parrish, who now runs the bunker as a museum. He's the grandson of J.A.J. Parrish, and so I asked him about his involvement in the bunker. Well, I'm uh, sort of a usurper in a way. I'm the fifth generation. We farm some 2,000 acres here. And in 1952, the government uh, approached my grandfather and under the threat of compulsory purchase, took the uh, 25 acres that the bunker is hidden under and uh, bulldozed the hill away, built the bunker, and then we farmed over it as though uh, so the Russians didn't know we were here. 
Well, it wasn't just the Russians who didn't know about this project here. Nobody knew about it. Parrish was given strict instructions to not tell anybody about the sale, including the local community. And so, construction began in October 1952. This massive project would be built under strict military secrecy, with the work being hidden behind the thick mature forest that covers much of the 24 acres here. And if any curious local was tempted to find out, well, they wouldn't get very far. The perimeter of this site was fenced and constantly patrolled with armed guards from the Royal Air Force. By May in 1953, the entire project was completed. This was a phenomenal achievement in just seven months, and a phenomenal cost too for the time, 1.5 million pounds. The speed and the price of it all should give you a sense of just how desperate this nuclear race was. And even if someone managed to break the perimeter and get past the guard, they might come down here and think, well, there's nothing here anyway. You see, it's impossible to tell there's even a bunker here at all. Like the 24,000 gallon water tanks, for example, they are all buried under the ground out of view. At the start, even the original generators were housed in a brick shed that was disguised to look like a little church until even they were moved inside. The only real evidence of the bunker is a 150-foot-tall communications mast and this innocuous bungalow in front of us, with brickwork that cleverly conceals hefty steel shutters and bomb-proof doors. Well, how about we head inside? make my way towards these um, these heavy doors uh, apparently some poor soul lost the tip of his finger in these doors so I'll, uh, I'll keep my hands to myself as I head through <laughs> so uh, as we step inside there is certainly a shift in feel there's no sign that this is a domestic dwelling place at all this decoy cottage is built like a fortress, and you can tell that from in here, with walls twice as thick as normal. And there's a false roof above us right now. 18 inches of reinforced ceiling made of concrete. It's kind of disconcerting, to be honest, when you walk into what you think is a little house, and then you end up just going down these little steps here to face an amazingly long tunnel. Just a... Just to give you a sense of the distance we're looking at, the corridor is about 360 meters. Uh, that's pretty long. And there's nobody here, by the way, but you and I. Well, as we head down this tunnel, there's a sense of potential claustrophobia. You know, because you're walking into the bunker itself, knowing that where we're heading is about 100 feet below the surface. And the bunker walls around us right now are 10 feet thick, made of concrete and reinforced every six inches with tungsten steel rods. Beyond that layer, by the way, there's a brick and pitch membrane and also a wire netting that creates a Faraday cage. This was to shield the facility from the electromagnetic pulse when the nuclear bomb went off. This cage protected the many, many electronic devices that were essential to the running of the bunker. And this long tunnel was also designed to help the inhabitants easily fight off invaders. Not Russian soldiers, though, but I'm talking about local, normal, everyday people like you and I. 
Yes, if there had been a nuclear war, millions would have died, but there would have been many survivors too. And they would have had to face horrific conditions outside. For example, like nuclear winter. This is the severe and prolonged cooling effect that can happen after a large-scale nuclear war. So the people outside might have faced temperatures of minus 20 to minus 40 degrees with no good harvest for three years at least. All the while dealing with radiation sickness and a massive loss of supplies, it would be like a science fiction nightmare becoming real. Understandably, if the desperate survivors ever learned of this place, of a fully functional nuclear bunker packed with fresh water, supplies and food, it stands to reason that they would desperately try to get in, but my point is they wouldn't make it. That farmhouse back there that we just came through is built more like a guardhouse, and this tunnel entrance is so long and so narrow, it'd be easy for the bunker guards to shoot and kill any intruders. Here at the other end of the tunnel, there's a set of two Rolls-Royce diesel engines with enough fuel to last for three months. And next to it, we turn as the tunnel turns towards another set of blast doors. These are quite impressive, these... These ones are made of tank metal. Apparently each door weighs about the same as a family car. And as we move through these doors, we now enter the bottom floor of this three-floor bunker. We are now deep under the hill. And this floor is supposed to be the safest of them all. And that's why around us we can see vital communications and machinery that are housed on this level. Now, one of the core functions of this bunker was to act as an emergency nerve center in the wake of a nuclear attack. It could be a vital space in which to form a regional crisis government, making detailed plans to help the country survive and even recover. So if our early warning systems had shown that the bombs really were on their way, 600 trained personnel would be rushed to this bunker, racing down that tunnel with their heads spinning at what was about to go down up there. There would be scientists and military leaders, politicians, doctors, workers with the Home Office. Now, this place was not designed to withstand a direct nuclear hit. But the chances of that happening was extremely unlikely anyway. This was a secret nuclear bunker after all. And yet the bunker would protect those 600 people from the more general devastation of a nuclear strike. And so the plan was that once World War III began, the teams down here would get to work coordinating the region's response. There would have been an extensive communication system from here to the outside world, and through it, essential supplies and services could be organized and maintained all from down here, as well as the allocation of energy and other key resources. And the bunker would also have acted as a channel of communication between any agencies and organizations up on the surface those that had managed to survive the bomb, at least. Nuclear historian, Taurus Young. Kelton Hatch was part of a network of bunkers across the country, uh, known at various times as regional seats of government uh, and later regional government headquarters. Basically, these bunkers allowed the machinery of government to be spread out across the country rather than being concentrated in one place or, to the Soviets, one easy target. 
the idea was that each region could be run from its regional government headquarters after the nuclear attack. These bunkers were so big that they often had dormitories, a cafeteria, and even a small BBC studio from where regional radio broadcasts of the wartime broadcasting service could take place. Now, local government officials would have already been assigned their post-apocalyptic roles in secret during peacetime. So, for example, the council's chief education officer might have been put in charge of emergency feeding. The chief medical officer could have been assigned emergency hospitals and sanitation. Uh, The social services department could be left to deal with the thousands of homeless people. During what was called the transition to war period, which was when it became obvious that the international situation was getting pretty spicy, these officials would be expected to leave their homes and families at the drop of a hat and descend down into the darkness of the bunker. Of course, whether they actually would have done so is another question. They would also monitor the devastation outside, keeping in close contact with the other bunkers. And between them, they could start to paint a picture of where exactly the nukes had exploded, as well as the location of the nuclear fallout. This is the residual radioactive dust that gets propelled into the upper atmosphere during an explosion and then gently starts to fall on the land. The most widespread danger from nuclear explosions is fallout. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Since it can be carried for great distances by the winds, it can eventually settle anywhere. So no place in the United Kingdom is safer than any other. The risk is as great in the countryside as in the towns. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. This devastating and deadly substance can become a lingering radioactive hazard for as long as one to five years after the attack. So as we head now into the communications area of the bunker, we find where the team would have issued those warnings to the country, which is why we're surrounded by phones right now here in the comms room. And by the way, the sounds you can hear around me, that's not me putting in effects or something. You know, this is what it's like down here. When when this is open to the public as a museum, people just come down here and, and it's a sort of simulation of what it would be like. But here we are, alone, down here right now, just me and you. The red war phones on the wall look particularly distinctive. These would have been used for the bunker staff to prompt certain people in the outside world to set off their sirens to warn the area. What a terrifying sound that must have been. The red warning, which was the actual nuclear attack warning, more often known as the four-minute warning, would have been broadcast from a BBC bunker in a place called Evesham. That's about 150 miles to the northwest of here. But the fallout warning for this area would have come from here in this bunker. Taras Young. When a nuclear weapon goes off, there's a number of different deadly effects some that are immediate and some that take a little bit longer to materialize. When the nuclear blast occurs, there's an enormous slow burst of light that's bright enough to temporarily blind you, even if you're many, many miles away, uh, and it can cause quite severe retinal damage. 
servicemen who were in, involved in the nuclear tests in the 1950s were told to shut their eyes and cover them with their hands. And they said that the burst of light was so intense that they could see the bones of their hands through their eyelids like an x-ray. Following that burst of light, almost instantaneously, there's an intense wave of heat. Uh, the fireball that's caused by the nuclear explosion can reach a million degrees centigrade. And the light and the heat that comes out of it would cause devastation for miles around ground zero. So obviously anything in the immediate vicinity would be vaporized. Um, but beyond that, for tens of miles, buildings would be set on fire. And anybody who was caught out in the open would experience fairly horrific, uh, you know, severe burns. Uh, the light and the heat travel at the speed of light, but right behind them, traveling at the speed of sound, is a pressure wave which causes even more destruction, knocking down buildings and taking out infrastructure like telephone poles and electricity pylons. And on top of all that destruction, there's also the electromagnetic pulse, or EMP. Uh, this is a pulse of energy that doesn't necessarily harm people directly, but what it does do is it damages electrical components. So after an EMP, your car won't start, your radio won't turn on. Uh, even if by some miracle your iPhone was still working, the cell towers that it relies on wouldn't be working. And then you've got the fallout. If the fireball from the nuclear burst comes into contact with the ground, it sucks up and churns up and irradiates all that material. And these irradiated particles are carried up into the atmosphere where they can be carried for hundreds of miles, potentially raining down on huge swathes of the country uh, over the coming days or weeks. And that fallout dust would settle on crops, it would be consumed by livestock, it would get into the water supply, uh, contaminating the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, and the water that we drink. Uh, some say that life after a nuclear attack would resemble a return to medieval times, but at least in medieval times, they could eat and drink without the fear of a, a slow, lingering death by radiation. Now, the UK's bunker network was integral to the government's plans for monitoring fallout. Incredibly, towards the end of the 1960s, there were well in excess of 1,500 government-owned bunkers across the UK. Most of these were tiny three-person structures called monitoring posts, which were to be manned by members of the Royal Observer Corps, which was a volunteer organisation recruited from just ordinary members of the public. Um, and these observers would watch the skies and report on nuclear explosions and any fallout. Uh, the information provided by the observers would be fed back to a body called the United Kingdom Warning and Monitoring Organization, who would use this data to figure out the position and the power of any nuclear explosions. And combining it with weather data, they could plot the potential path that any fallout might take and warn the public. A white warning meant that an area was clear of fallout. A grey warning meant fallout was due within the hour. A black warning meant nuclear fallout was imminent. In England, the arrival of fallout was heralded by a signal made of three loud bangs. In Scotland, however, fallout was signaled to the outside world with the ringing of church bells. United Kingdom was heavily attacked with nuclear weapons at one o'clock this afternoon. Some of our cities and towns have been badly damaged. Others 
It's also said that some of the most important members of the government may well have been stationed at Kelvedon Hatch too. Here we are in what's known as the long corridor on the middle floor. And I'm walking past three rooms. These are the only private rooms of the bunker, and it is here where the commissioner and the principal officer would sleep, as well as, potentially, the British Prime Minister. In fact, I've reached the PM's room right now, the door plate says, Prime Minister. And I can see a bed in there. There's a single little desk lamp shining on a figure face up. It's Margaret Thatcher, Britain's Prime Minister in the 1980s. Well, okay, it's not her exactly, but it's some sort of mannequin that they have put in here with her face on it, just staring up into the ceiling. Actually, I haven't mentioned those yet, have I? The mannequins. Yeah, that's another slightly disconcerting aspect of being down here. Now that the place is a museum, the owners have placed mannequins at various points in this bunker, and I've been alone ever since I stepped out of the car, but in the bunker I've jumped a couple of times so far at the sounds of the voices coming over the PA system, recreating the sounds of the time. But also and especially I've turned a few corners to see the cold staring face of shop dummies with ill-fitting wigs and doll eyes staring at me. Some of them in gas masks, but most with their grey faces exposed. It really does just all add to the sombre atmosphere down here. Visitors to the bunker can collect a red plastic audio wand from the entrance at the farmhouse. There's nobody physically there to give it to you. You just pick one up and it's part of the admission that you pay at the end. And I must say that the audio tour down here is pretty brutal. For example, it just suggested that if a nuclear war had happened in Britain, the commissioner in this end room, the one I'm standing in front of now, I've just moved down from the prime minister's office to the commissioner's room, The one in this room would have been tasked, apparently, with issuing euthanasia orders. Yes, the audio guide says that the plan would be to, quote, get rid of the mentally handicapped, old, and infirm, because after only a very few days, we would have run out of essential drugs such as morphine. And so the commissioner, apparently, would therefore authorize the police to put us out of our misery with their pistols. Now, I I must say, I have never heard of such a plan like this before. So, you know, don't, don't take that as read. But it's not a stretch to think that in the grim aftermath of a nuclear war, there may well have been some people at least out there begging for death. Well, I've moved back a little bit into the bunker to a little room. And in this room, I can see a series of white lab coats hanging from the wall. This seems to be where the scientists would have been stationed in the bunker. But as we walk in here now, just around the corner, I can see some old government safety videos being projected on the walls. Now, this is a series of films that were part of a public education campaign called Protect and Survive. Listen to your radio. Stay where you are and keep listening to your radio. Now, this is what you should do. Some people in England insist they saw these at the time, but many of them didn't. They wouldn't have been broadcast unless there was the event of an imminent war. However, they were featured in a documentary with a journalist called Jeremy Paxman, so some people may have seen that. But as I sit for a moment, I have seen these videos over the years, and just watching them alone in this bunker... (laughs) 
Gotta say, it's pretty creepy. Especially the queasy little synthesizer music that plays at the start of each of these films never fails to make me shiver. But there's just something very ominous about the deadpan, no-nonsense way this information is delivered. Like when they give instructions on what to do if one of your family members died after the strike. The advice was to place the corpse in another room, cover it securely, and add an identification tag. They also give instructions on how to build an inner refuge in your house. It tells us to take the doors off their hinges and lean them against an inner wall, packing it with cushions and blankets and other dense materials to create our own little personal bunker. The idea was that you could stay under here for 14 days until the all-clear was given. And it would be easy to read this with a sense of hope, thinking, hey, we'll make it through this. But yet again, the audio tour down here in Calverton Hatch paints a rather more gloomy picture, claiming that after 14 days, many, many of us will be dead. It even suggests that the procedures of building home shelters wasn't even to save you or your family, but rather to simply ensure that the people of Britain died in their homes. That was more efficient when it came to rebuilding society. Otherwise, the streets and roads might be blocked due to being littered with abandoned cars and corpses. So you are just as safe in your own home area as anywhere else. In fact, you are far better off at home because it is the place you know and where you are known. So, stay where you are. Well, join me next time for the second and final part of this special episode, where we'll be moving even deeper into Kelvin and Hatch nuclear bunker, where we'll be learning more about what a post-apocalyptic nuclear world would actually look like, both for those in the bunker, but also for the rest of us up top. We'll be paying special attention to the psychological effects of nuclear war, and Taurus Young will be back sharing a surprising plan from a British civil servant who asked the UK government to actively recruit psychopaths to the cause. They, it was argued, would be the only people left who were psychologically resilient enough to get anything done. Also, there's a fascinating interview with the owner of the bunker today, Mike Parrish, who tells us about how requests for spaces down here have grown in recent weeks. So, join me next time. But for now, I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Hometown History Europe. Goodbye. network so powerful that one day the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away connecting to remote operating room giving a whole new meaning to the term house call operation complete the cox network with gig speeds everywhere it's internet built for tomorrow today cox bringing us closer in cox serviceable areas speeds vary and are not guaranteed cox terms apply other restrictions may apply Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.